Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Thursday, February 25th, 2016. This is episode 1739 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, it's Thursday, Thursday, Thursday. Time for your calls to the Think Line, 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. Give that number a call. You'll hear a recording. Leave your call for me, and maybe you'll hear it on the air next week. Well, in this case, you won't hear it on the air next week, because next week I will be in the state of California, uh, which I'm never happy about being in the state of California. It's a beautiful place, but... God, talk about a government that sucks. But I'm going to be happy anyway because I'm going to be at Permaculture Voices 3. So if you call in this week, in the coming week, you might hear yourself the following Friday or following Thursday, I'm sorry, uh, on the show. Because I will be back Wednesday of the next week and there will be a Thursday call-in show for you as the first show back after I come back. I may do some guerrilla podcasting while I'm gone. I don't know yet. It all depends on how things work out. There should be a lot of opportunity to have different people talk. But it'll be all permaculture stuff because it's a permaculture event. So... Those of you that don't like permaculture, the show's going to take a break for uh, about a week, uh, from Tuesday from one week to Wednesday of the next week, because i got to go do that. It's part of my uh, giving back to the community of speaking at events like this. Anyway, if you are coming to Permaculture Voices 3, remember there is a very super secret email list. It's so super secret it's published publicly on my blog. If you fill out the form there and we have any kind of uh, TSP meetups or anything, I will notify you by sending an email uh, from my hotel room in uh, in California, and we will uh, meet up somewhere and hang out. And if I do any kind of impromptu Q&A sessions or anything like that during off time or whatever, if we have anything going on at all that's kind of TSP-centric, uh, you'll get a little email on your mobile device to let you know what's going on. Next up, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show's here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today, BulkAmmo.com. When I need ammo and I want it in bulk, I go to BulkAmmo.com. Why? Because the name says what you're going to get. Ammo in bulk at great prices with lightning fast shipping. How fast is their shipping? It's almost like this. I've placed my order. I go on about my day and I hear... Gee, who's that? The postman with my ammo. How did that happen? It's not quite that fast, but it feels that fast. I think for most of us to think, you know what I should do? I should run out to the you know sporting goods store or whatever and, and bulk up on ammo this week. By the time you got around to doing it, it could be sitting on your doorstep. That's how quick their shipping is. They have all of the common cal- calibers, great pricing, excellent service, and they're a long-term sponsor. They've been with us for, I think, four years now. So when you need ammo and you need it in bulk, Get on over to Bulk Ammo. Remember, ammo is one of the three components to the, the, the triangle of gun operator effectiveness. You've got to have the weapon. You go to a gunfight without a gun, you got a problem. You, the operator, needs training. But even with a good operator and a good firearm, without the ammo, man, that's the terminal tackle, as we say in fishing. You've got to have the ammo to put food on the table, to protect life and property, and to train effectively. Check out BulkAmmo.com today. And remember, they do do a discount for members of the Support Brigade. Just take the benefits section of your MSB for more information on that.
Next up today, sponsor of the day number two, Sawtooth Tactical. You'll find them over at sawtac.com. You'll get all the stuff you need to live that tactical lifestyle if you get on over to Sawtac. Veteran-owned, veteran-operated, and nestled in the wilderness of the Sawtooth Mountains. That's why they call them Sawtac. And when I say everything, I mean everything from the awesome manly titanium spork, Maxpedition bags, Magpul magazines, SOE tactical gear, and everything else you can think of. If it's tactical, they have Have it at Sawtooth Tactical. Remember the website again, www.sawtac.com, and they also do do a discount for members of the support brigade. So if you're a member and you're going to get some tactical material from Sawtac, get into your MSB account, click on Benefits, and look up Sawtac and get that discount. Again, a veteran-owned, veteran-operated company nestled in the Sawtooth Wilderness of Idaho, sawtac.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year that is the episode I have for 1739 from Alex Shrugged at TSPWiki.com. Rule Britannia. Britannia rule the waves. I have the foundation of the Methodists, and I have Clinton is born. Hillary Clinton is born because I think it has the most to say about today. And I love Alex Shrugged's take, and I don't have to say much. George Clinton is born, not the other Clinton. He is born in New York to Irish immigrant parents. He will become a brigadier general for the Continental Army. He will also be elected to two political offices at the same time, governor of New York and lieutenant governor. He will decide to reside in the position of lieutenant governor. He will also serve as vice president of the United States under Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. I remember George Clinton best as one of the anti-federalists. When the Constitution of the United States was drafted, a long discussion and debate on the ratification of the Constitution began. That debate went on all across the country in uh, pubs, churches, and newspapers. The Federalists were arguing for a strong federal government and opposed the Bill of Rights. They felt that if our inalienable rights were written down, that people in later years might think those rights came from government and not from our Creator. Imagine that. They also feared that people might think the Bill of Rights were our only rights. Outrageous. The Anti-Federalists opposed the Constitution until the Bill of Rights was added to the negotiations. George Clinton opposed the idea of a president because he felt that one day a president might collect enough power to be declared a king. Frankly, both Federalists and Anti-Federalists were right by the government. The problem in any blanket right granted by government can also be rescinded by government. School-age children are no longer educated in basic civics, and they are no longer critical thinkers. I am a critical thinker, but I had to teach myself how did I do that. I studied the great books. If you want to know how critical thinkers think, read what they wrote and try to figure out why they wrote it that way. Uh, I almost don't have to say anything. I mean, that's that's succinct and exactly the, the, the debate that went on between the Federalists and Anti-Federalists. What I will say is I wasn't always a critical thinker. And I remember very clearly when we studied this in high school, I think it was in 10th grade, my history teacher saying, well, which one do you think we should have, a strong central government or the power lie in the states? And thinking like a young military uh, brought up young man that understood the threat of the Soviet Union and everything was overseas and that collectively we had to stand together as a nation to fight off the enemy, I said, believe it or not, well, I think you have to have a strong federal government. Somebody has to be in charge. Yeah, I was a dumbass, but I didn't know. I was following what I had been taught like most people do in school at that point. teacher was actually quite pleased with my answer. He liked it. And we went on to a long discussion about how the power of the presidency and the federal government as a whole had grown over time, specifically really beginning with the, with the Civil War, or as I call it, the more accurate war between the states. And uh, today I think completely differently. Uh, this is how I feel today. The federal government has too much power. 
the state governments have too much power over their people. And that's not even as an anarchist. That's if I pull myself out of my anarchist cloak and I look at this just as a person who says we do need government. If I was still a believer that the state could do things right, I think both have far too much power. And I think the most abuses of power that are coming around today, you know, tying with our show yesterday about what people are, you know, what happens to people trying to do simple things like grow gardens on their own property are coming from the county and local levels. Like the county, the cities, these are the places where the greatest abuses are. And, and I think that we've got everything backwards. That the greatest power of any, any govern, governance should be looking up toward the next level of governance to prevent it from acting on the people that it represents. What we've actually got is the federal government says, here's all the stuff you can't do, right? And then the state says, in addition to that, you can't also do all these things. And then the county says, in addition to that, you can't do all these things. Or to do these things, you must give us money, extortion, right? And then the cities say the same thing. And then even down to minor townships do the same thing. We've got it backwards. Now, as to the debate about the Constitution, if we put the rights that were considered granted by our creation, and I like that much better than by our creator, but by our creation, because that makes it completely universal. To the evolutionist, right, to the atheist, to the agnostic, we were still created, whether it was through a natural process or through an intelligent design or through a direct intervention of God, whichever one you believe, you were still created beings. We still exist. And in our creation, we have certain inalienable rights that we recognize in each other as fellow human beings. That argument from the Federalists, I believe, was disingenuous. I believe they knew full well that it would put restrictions on what they could do. Because this is one thing that even 30 years ago, we weren't really teaching our kids in school, that I didn't learn until I was you know, a grown adult. The Bill of Rights of the United States Constitution does not apply to the states. It only applies to the federal government. The states, by the Constitution, are to have Republican forms of government, not Republican Party, and are to have their own constitutions and be run as minor republics within the greater republic. And that Constitution puts the restrictions and powers on the individual states. So the states had no problem with the Bill of Rights because it didn't apply to them. The people that wanted more strength in the federal government weren't worried that one day, oh, God forbid, somebody would say, oh, you, you don't have a right to, to a gun. You know, it doesn't say so in the Constitution. I'll just say that the in the overall macro, I think the anti-federalists were right. Because what have you seen your government do today? And at least the remnants that are the toilet paper they wipe their ass with that is the Constitution still hold some value. This country would not have 55 million gun owners in it without the Second Amendment. People would not be able to protest the way that they do peacefully without the First Amendment. The newspapers, the magazines, I dare say even the Internet, would be controlled today far more than they are if not for the First Amendment. I do believe people by now would be being compelled to testify against themselves if it was not for the Fifth Amendment. While I am for the elimination of the state as an ideal, if there will be a state, I say the more restrictions upon it, the better. With that, 
Uh, let me remind you real quick, if you like the work I do and want to support the show, go to survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn how to join the Member Support Brigade. Get discounts on for more than 60 companies. Really great stuff you're probably buying anyway that'll pay you back, and you'll support the show at about 20 cents an episode. That's all I'll say on that today. All right, getting into the main topic, let's go ahead and take your first call for me. Hello, Jack. This is Scott in Oregon. I'm calling because I'd like to address the standoff in Oregon, and I'd like it to get some real media attention. I admit, uh, I don't think the situation was handled correctly on either side, but that's beside the point. My real issue is the shooting death of Robert Lavoie Finnecombe. I live 133 miles west of where this took place. The talk around town here is that during the first stop, law enforcement fired upon these vehicles. Not knowing that they were less than lethal, Finnecombe's vehicle fled. At no time in that video that's been publicized did I see Finnecombe uh, brandish a weapon, but he was shot and killed anyways. If it were a civilian that pulled the trigger prior to knowing for a fact that their life was in danger, they'd be rotting away in a prison right now, in my opinion. What's your take on this? Once again, Scott in Oregon. Thanks. Let me start out with I agree with every single thing that the caller said. But my view is what will become of it is the square root of nothing. Nothing is going to be done. Um, these individuals were branded as terrorists and dangerous and armed to the teeth and, and all of these different things before this occurred. And our government was a little bit smarter this time in pulling off what I consider a murder rather than what they did at Ruby Ridge or Waco. They set up a scenario that would allow them to apprehend the individuals, and if, if, they, if they wanted to shoot them, shoot them, and be able to say, hey, man, these guys had guns. They said they were going to defend themselves. Look, the guy ran, what have you. So here's my issue. This is what, what's not being shown in the video. That Now, understand, if this, if this video was of some black kid being shot in the streets of Chicago, it would still be being played every night on television. I know some people don't like to hear it put that way, but it's true. It's true. I mean, white male privilege doesn't apply everywhere, guys. Okay? Just to be blunt. But if you actually watch this video, and you watch the, the technical analysis of this vehicle, of uh, this video, you will see shots fired while the man is dying on the ground on his stomach. You'll see a final shot fired where he is down on the ground, not, not surrendering, collapsed. And another shot is fired across and through his back. That's that isn't. It, it, there is no way that's a justifiable use of force. I don't care if the guy took a shot at. If he did draw a gun. If he's laying on the ground with his hands in the snow bleeding, you don't take one more shot at him. And this is what's going on here. This is what's going on here in law enforcement. This is not to, to belittle a man's life and comparing it to dogs. But this is why so many dogs are shot. Law enforcement culture today, not all you guys, but law enforcement culture as a whole has gotten to a point where many of the people in law enforcement are looking for a way to shoot something. They train for it. We're training in a militarized manner. We're not training in a law enforcement manner anymore. These guys get amped up. They get into a position. And once one cop shoots... 
Let me tell you something. In almost every instance, there's exceptions, but in almost every instance, any other officer that fires is off the hook. If the, if the, 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 if the shot was bad, it's almost certainly going to hang on the first cop. Why'd you shoot? I heard shots. The shooting was going on. I couldn't tell where shots were coming. The guy was armed, right? There's, there's almost no way to hang it on the second guy to pull the trigger or the third guy to pull the trigger. Now, somebody's going to write me, you're wrong, and it happened, and here's... Yeah, in what, one instance? In general, if there's multiple shots fired, if there's anything to be hung up as a mistake, it's going to hang on the first officer to fire. And, and they know that, even if it's in the back of their head. And once shots go off, the amped energy, hey, this guy could be shooting at me, he's got a gun, it takes over. But I'll tell you why nothing will be done. It does not serve the interests of the people in power in this country. Whether or not an officer who unjustly shoots a black teenager is convicted or loses his job or whatever, okay, and whether or not the shooting was justified or not justified, playing up the hatred by showing it over and over again, and basically if the wound starts to heal at all, pulling the scab off it and rubbing some salt in it, does serve the interest of the people in charge of this country because they want you divided. If we were to actually, at a national level, look at this incident and say these officers were unjust, and we were actually to say, look, this, and, and here's what has to happen, guys. Those of you outraged by this, you better be outraged by the black kid shot that shouldn't have been shot too. And what we need at all levels is to be able to separate the white kid, the black kid, the white guy, the black guy, the, the white woman, the black lady, the Hispanic woman, the Hispanic man, whatever. The shooting does not matter what the color of the shot person is. It matters if it was handled correctly. And we have people on both sides that are making it about the race versus the reality. No matter how tough I am on cops, let me tell you something. Go into a job every day where you know a guy that you pull over that you were going to let off with a warning for being a few miles over the speed limit could turn around and shoot you is not an easy job. It's not. And there's a certain fear factor that's there all the time. But I'll tell you this, if you carry a badge and a gun and you're getting to the point where you're antsy and you find yourself thinking about drawing a gun and it turns out two or three times in a row that it was unnecessary, even if you didn't do it, you were thinking about it. Time to find something else to do, guys. You're not cut out for the job anymore. I, I, I don't have a solution for this. The, the, the caller says he wants real media. To I'm not real media. I'm a podcast with 150,000 people. I know my pay grade. To get this exposure at the national level is beyond what I can do. And I don't know what to say. But here's what I think. I think of every single person in this audience, 150,000 people today, all bang the phones to their local media uh, stations, you know, ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox, the local affiliates, and said, you guys got to cover this. This is BS. And had a well-put-together case. I still think it would accomplish the square root of nothing. That's how tightly controlled this stuff is. I don't want to believe what I'm saying. I want to believe that if 10,000 people made it their mission to get this looked at at a national level, something would be done. But I don't believe it would. That's the nation you live in today. So when it comes to standing up for your rights as a patriot, 
you better think about the way that you do it. I'm not saying that there's any justification for the, the murder of this man, and I see it as a murder, and I see every person that fired a shot at this guy should be in prison minimum for the rest of their life as a effing murderer, just to be clear, okay? But if you take the stance that they did, whether it's morally right or wrong in the current climate, you need to know that this could be the result of it. I have said from almost the beginning of the show all the way back in 2008, I've been quoted for saying this. In today's climate, the ballot box is a fool's errand and the rifle is a death sentence. I said that almost eight years ago now. And this just shows that it's true. That if you're going to make a stand... In today's day and age, you actually weaken the serpent that is the state by doing it unarmed. By doing it unarmed. Sure, they might tear gas you, they might take you into custody, but they'll let you out in a couple days. Don't resist the rest. Go back to what you were doing and do it again. The time for the rifle is when there's no other option and thank god we are so far from that point but i'll tell you right now if you want to actually make a difference in this country proactive apathy it beats demonstrating it beats voting it beats all of it it is time for a real revolution in this country a real insurgency where we just begin to live our lives differently we stop asking permission we deal with the interactive edge with the state whenever we can And again, while I want these murderers brought to justice, I'm going to tell you right now, it's not going to happen. It's never going to happen. Absolutely nothing is going to happen to these men. They are going to get away with it. And it is not their fault that they're going to get away with it. It is the system has been set up so that this can occur. But I'll tell you right now, if everything was the same, If every single thing was the same, but the Oregon militia were made up of black people, something would be done. Don't be mad at black people over that. Don't be mad at black people over that. It's a exact 100% the way the system is designed to work Today, it is designed to make you resent people that are different than you, whether the difference is the color of your skin, your sex, your age group, your income level, your nationality. It doesn't matter. The system is designed to create hatred, and it is so effective. It is so effective that our government can get away with murder on video. If you want to fight that system head on, I wish you the best. But I think it's time to know our enemy. And to know our enemy's greatest weakness is the unity of its people. The more united we are, the less power they have. Turn off the idiot box. Stop listening to their bullshit. Build your community. Build diversity the right way. The right way is voluntarily. 
Stop believing their machine. Stop believing their programming. Let's take another one. It's way longer than I expected to go on this. Hi, Jack. Calling you from North Carolina tonight where we're having a lot of storms and preparedness has certainly helped keep peace of mind in our house. Question for you, or rather comment. Um, our area has seen a lot of tethering ordinances or so-called anti-tethering ordinances. wanted to mention to you because of the, the civil liberties implications. Wasn't sure if it was a national trend or if it's just unique to our area. Both counties contiguous to ours have adopted uh, these ordinances that uh, essentially make it illegal to keep a dog um, on any kind of lead, uh, chain, any kind of cable, um, whether it's tied to a tree or uh, staked like a trolley system between two trees. Um, you have to have a dog in a fenced-in area. Um, or it has to be supervised if it's on any kind of leash or tether. Um, what that essentially means is that if you keep a dog outside anything other than a dog run, you're in violation of uh, the ordinance for whatever municipality you're living in that's adopted one of these. Um, groups like the ASPCA and Humane Society in our areas are pushing uh, both cities and counties to adopt these ordinances, and uh, they tend to show up in force at... Uh, city council meetings and or county commissioner meetings where uh, the usually adopted an overwhelming majority of the commissioners or city council members. Wanted to see if uh, you had heard of anything out your way with it. Um, also wanted to see uh, what your thoughts were. And um, from a law enforcement standpoint, since I am a law enforcement officer, uh, what would you recommend when when and if our county adopts the same ordinances, how do we go about trying to skirt the law or get around it without uh, blatantly disregarding it when it is on the books? Thank you, sir. Bye. Uh, this is one of those things that I have very, very mixed emotions on because I can see this law definitely being abusive, and I don't really think it's the government's place to tell people how to take care of their dogs. But I actually am completely opposed to the practice that the law's intent is meant to prevent, but not how the law will probably be applied. So let's explain that. Um, I have a dog, and I live in a place without a fence, and generally I'm able to supervise the dog, but I have a dog line, and I put the dog on the line. So when I'm there, and I'm kind of paying attention, but... Uh, I, I could turn my back long enough for him to bolt on me. He's re he's restrained. And I'm not really supervising it the way this, this law could be read to mean, but I am. I mean, the dog's not alone for more than maybe 15 minutes at a time. I'm working in a shed. The dog's right there. Uh, I, I just don't trust the dog to not leave. We had a bird dog that we used to do this with all the time. If we were 100% on the ball with him, like we were out and he was he knew we were there, and we, you leave him off the leash, he wouldn't run away. You turn your back on him, the dog will bolt, so you put him on a leash. Okay? This allowed the dog to be outside. This allowed for us. But you know what we didn't do? We didn't put the dog on a leash, get in the car, and leave. Nobody there. As bad as that is, what's worse and what's causing these laws, you have to understand that generally laws, even when they're stupid laws that are unnecessary, are caused by an actual abuse or an actual problem. What people do is they take the dog, 
They put the dog on a chain. The dog lives on a chain for its whole freaking life. If you do that to a dog, you are an animal abuser. I don't want a law passed that says you're not allowed to do it. I want your ass kicked and your dog taken away from you because I'm an anarchist. That's what I think needs to happen. I mentioned a story when I talked about following your passion uh, in a business show recently about my friend Kathleen from New Jersey who now has a dog sitting. And I said she was so passionate about taking care of animals properly that she was part of a group that was basically an anarcho group that would go and actually remove abused animals with no permission, no government, I'll just take them away. The animal just disappear one day from an abusive situation. And the response was, somebody has to take care of those dogs. I, I respect the shit out of that, even though what she does is theft, what she did, I don't think she's involved with that anymore, was technically theft. And the response was, someone has to do it. I think keeping a, a dog living on a leash is abusive as hell. And I think it leads to very aggressive very unsocially adjusted dogs, and I think it's completely irresponsible. Doesn't mean I necessarily want the government to step in and fix it, though. Because here's what I see happening. Guy's doing exactly what I said. He's got his dog, he's out, and he's got the leash, puts the dog on the leash, goes in the house for 10 minutes, comes back outside, cops out there, cites some animal controls brought in, abuse, Kermit the Frog sings a song, I mean, you know. The guy is, is is ripped up one side or the other. He's this animal abuser. His reputation ruined. He's fine. They take his dog away. They put his dog to sleep because they can't find a home for it when a dog was perfectly safe the way it is. That's where I see this going. And I, I think there's more at this, though, as well. So you take a dog, you put him on a collar. You put him on a leash. That's your form of restraint. Any dog left for any period of time, there's only two things that can happen. One, the collar can be... A collar that causes injury, or the dog figures out how to slip the collar and get away. So your restraint is inadequate. Now you have a dog on the loose that's not supposed to be on the loose. That can result in people being injured, your dog being injured, people being uh, somebody hurting your dog, you know, your dog being run over, it messing messing somebody's life up. I mean, a dog's a responsibility. And I believe if you can't responsibly contain a dog, you shouldn't have a dog. Very, very simply. But, I mean, so the, the way this becomes a disaster, though, is like, so I've, I've been to, you know, restaurants that have outdoor seating for the bar and whatever in nice communities like Colorado. This is real popular. And a guy and his wife or whatever will, will come to the, to, to the place. They bring the dog. Well, the dog's not allowed inside. But they actually have places for the dog's leashes to be tied to outside. And then they go eat, and they're like, they can see the dog. So technically it's being supervised. But our, the guy gets up to take a leak, whatever. And these dogs are well-trained dogs. They're used to see, it's a difference between a dog that's tethered just to hold it in place and a dog that's trained. We're going to go to this place. The master's going to go inside. When I'm like this, my job is to stay here, and I know and I understand my job. And this, 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 this tether is really a reminder because, like I said, when, the, when a dog really wants to, a dog can slip a collar. Unless it's a pinching collar, and a tether a dog with a pinch collar is, is just jacked up. Because if something happens, it's actually a threat to that dog's safety, like a fire or something like that. You want the dog to be able to, in a panic mode, slip the collar. So leashes used as tethers can be responsible, uh, responsibly used. But they also are used abusively. So I'm generally opposed to any laws being passed that we don't already have. But it doesn't mean this isn't a problem. And I think it's one best handled through education 
And I think it's also one of those things that there's the people this law is meant to prevent from doing it are going to do it anyway. And they're going to get away with it because they're in areas where nobody's going to enforce the law. This is a law to prevent people from buying 50 pit bulls to keep on a quarter acre trailer park lot and having them all change just, change just out of each other's reach and, and, and treating them like shit. You know? About the only place I know where this technique is used, and I, I understand why, is Alaska with sled dogs. But I guess my response to that is if it can be done there, it can be done elsewhere. But this seems to be something more for a community to deal with. And there are, there's no other word for it, complete dirtbags that abuse dogs with this. And I understand why the law is becoming something that is moving around the country. And it is moving around the country. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. I just have a quick uh, question for you. What do you think the impact would be if they eliminated the $100 bill? I was watching a uh, vlog on YouTube from uh, Molden, and they were talking about how they're bantering the idea of eliminating the $100 bill. So I'd just like to see what you would think of would be the effects to the economy of that. Thank you. Have a nice day. Okay, I am going to answer the question as it was asked after I answer the question with a, with a, a firm dose of reality. This all started when a former uh, Secretary of the che Treasury, uh, Larry Summers, um, basically wrote an opinion piece as to why he feels the $100 bill should be eliminated because it's, it's used in criminal activities, It's counterfeited. It's a large amount of cash that can be in a small area. I mean, 10 bills is a thousand bucks, right? You know, a hundred bills is ten thousand dollars. hundred bills doesn't take up that. It's a lot of uh, money in one small amount that can be used for a lot of nefarious purposes. We'll just ignore the fact that he doesn't, doesn't have a problem with the 50 um, when it's only double that amount. It doesn't really change things. But, but what this whole thing is, is a washed-up has-been no one gives a shit about anymore going, look at me, look at me, pay, I want five more minutes of people looking at me, I want interviews, I want to sell a book, I want to be on TV, look at me, please look at me, please look, no one's looked at me since I retired, please look at me. And it's going to go like a, like a wave through the ocean, but bloop and gone, and you're never going to hear about it again. And not. When, when, when you see the $100 bill go away, it will be when they're, they're trying to make cash go away. So it's all a non-story. Now that we've established that, let's look at this a little bit from a standpoint of what would it do if they did it to the economy? Well, very little. It would have almost no economic impact. First of all, I don't know about you, but in general, if I go to a bank and cash a check, for let's say I'm going to get like 350 bucks, and the lady behind the counter says to give me 300 and a 50, I'm like, uh-uh, no, 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 no. I don't even want 100. You know, $100 bills are great when you need to store up. Like, if you want to have $500 in, like, emergency cash, you do, like, 200s, right, and 450s and 520s. And take a very small amount. You can scroll that away. So if you need it, it's there. But I would even say, you know, you want to be more like 300 in hundreds uh, in and, like, 150s. Uh, and, and, like, the rest of it in 20s is actually better. Some small bills. 
So they can they can boost that emergency cash and all, but you don't. I mean, no one wants to like have to go into a store and buy something for like fifteen bucks and hand a guy a hundred. And I know almost everybody in this audience, you've been in a position where that's what you've had. And when you pay for something like that, what do you say? I'm sorry, it's all I got. And you mean it. You're sincere. So it's not like people really like using hundreds in the first place, unless it's for large purchases. You know, I mean, when you take cash for a product and it's a $500 product, it's pretty common for a person to give you four, four hundreds and some twenties or all hundreds and you don't have a problem with it. But in general, it's not like it's something we use a lot. So this is again, look at me, pay attention to me. You care about something you don't really care about. Okay. That's, that's what this is. Now, the next reason it wouldn't have that big of a broad economic impact in our country is if you look at the money supply. There's, there's different metrics of it. There's the M1, the M2, and the M3. The M3 is the totality of money. They, they don't even really keep track of it anymore because, well, it's, it's easier to lie to people if you don't tell them the total number. We could still at Shadow Stats get a basic understanding of the M3. And we could find the total amount of cash circulating in our economy. When I say cash, I don't mean money in your bank account that's liquid, like in a checking account, that's flowing because that's part of the M1. Right. The M1 is basically the, 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 the small bank accounts and all the money that moves around all the time. That's, that's the most mobile money. All right. So when I say cash, I don't mean the M1. I mean, when I say cash, I mean paper bills. Paper bills account for about 3% of the total M3 money supply. So 97% of the United States dollars today have no paper representation. They are simply ones and zeros. And that, that 3% number is from all the way back in 2008 when Chris Martinson did Crash Course. And with quantitative easing and things like that, I, I would bet that number's even dwindled some since then. So you're, when you look at cash money that people carry around in their wallets and their pockets and all, you're only looking at 3% of the total money in the economy. It, it's probably a much more significant portion of the M1. But if they did get rid of the 100, all they would do is print more 50s. Now here's why that's not going to happen. The, the Treasury is not making money, printing money anymore. They, they've actually talked about kind of the converse in, in reality, like maybe we should get rid of the penny. Just have transactions round to the, to the nickel. Because actually lose money making pennies today, even with the zinc-copper mix. Pennies are not profitable for the Treasury. When traditionally coinage, since 1964 especially, when they got rid of silver, has been proper, pro, uh, profitable for the Treasury. They basically sell the currency into circulation. Because it costs them less to produce a nickel than a nickel's worth. But that's changed too. Now with the copper drop, it's back to where a nickel's profitable for them to produce. But the energy and materials and time and labor to produce a penny is not worth a penny. So unless we have like a deflationary economy like to talk about, if you have continued small amounts of upward inflation, as money becomes worth less, you need larger denominations for transactions to be possible. So I, I don't see this actually ever uh, being a place where they get rid of the 100 because of evil stuff. It's like everybody gave up on that with Bitcoin. Now we need a new enemy, and this guy needs... I'm telling you, I bet you money, within 90 days, this guy's releasing a book if he doesn't already have one. And this is designed to do nothing but start a discussion about something that's never going to happen to get this guy on, 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 on radio and television. I just call it like I see it, guys. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. It's Matt in Wisconsin. My question is, how do I use my current business opportunities to help create my own business or cash flow? Details. 
I'm currently employed as a consultant and have leadership roles on projects with a wide variety of clients, and I'd like to move toward running my own business as a step toward freedom. The clients we have are a wide variety of large and small companies I'm interacting with, uh, up to a vice president or even occasionally a C-level executive, oftentimes a Fortune 100 company. Um, I have a standard non-compete in my employment agreement with my employer, but it still feels like there are opportunities with all these relationships I could do something with that I'm not doing. Uh, my employer isn't opposed to his employees having side businesses, several of us do, um, as long as it doesn't directly compete with his service and he's still getting what he pays for. Uh, one example I've thought of is introducing my contacts to another friend that I have who owns a cybersecurity services company and to get commissions for that. Are there other ideas you have, or would you focus on creating my own separate idea, uh, opportunities um, a different way if I wanted to try to get a side business going? All right. Thanks, Jack. Bye. Um, I'm going to say tread lightly is my first piece of advice. A lot of times you have relationships with people where they say, well, we have nobody, we have no problem with you having your own thing, especially in you're in a position right now as a consultant where you're being paid on like a 1099 or something like that is more like a contractor than an employee, which it sounds like is where you're at. Now, I think one of the first things that you could do, if that in fact is the case, if you're being paid on a 1099, is to incorporate even with something like an S-Corp or an LLC and begin to have your company bill the people that pay you. Because that starts to establish the company so the company can get things like lines of credit and things like that. And it's a real pain in the ass. And later, if you're ready to actually roll a business out and you want to incorporate quickly and you need a letter of good standing and a bank account, all this other horse crap, it's more difficult. So generally speaking, if you're already a contractor, and especially if you have more than one client, it makes a lot of sense. And even if you don't want the duplication of taxation and whatever with a, with a corp, you just set up an LLC and the money income passes through to you anyway. And that the only thing that really changes is they cut checks to the LLC instead of you, but that changes everything. This also starts to establish a track record for your business. I'm putting air quotes around it you can't see. Because let's say you pull this off, and in two years you walk away from your, 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 your employment as a contractor, and you've rolled out this new business, and it's doing well. And at that point, you start billing as a company uh, to your new clients and new segments and whatever. Okay, uh, When you go to get a mortgage because you decide, now I want to buy a house, or you go to get any kind of personal credit and they look at your employment history and you're self-employed, well, your company's only six months old. So it doesn't even have a tax return yet. And generally speaking, what you want for most lines of credit, including mortgages, is two years of tax returns as self-employed. So by switching now to corporate, and please talk to your CPA and possibly a tax attorney before you do this. This is an option, okay? I always caveat that. But if you do that now, at any point that you actually just switch what you're doing and start billing somebody else, as long as they're paying the bills of the same company, that's still continuation of that corporate income. And, and there's so many places in life that may help you in the future. It also makes it a lot easier for you to deduct a lot of things on a schedule, just a simple Schedule C, because it's a clearly delineated line of self-employment. Your employer, contractee, client, whatever, should actually like this. 
Because it, it, it makes things cleaner for them, too. So the government can't go in and go, is this guy really a contractor? Because they're doing that everywhere now. That's why so many companies are moving to contractors, because the burden of many regulations, but specifically Obamacare, is making employer, employing people more expensive than ever. Well, if they go in and say, well, you know, John, John Q. Public works for you as John Q. Public under his Social Security number, is he really a contractor? Do you tell him when to show up? All kinds of other horse crap, you know? But if, he, but if they say, well, who, you say John Q. Public doesn't work for me. John Q. Public LLC has a contract with me, and John Q. Public Jr. owns it. And he does whatever he wants with this company. Well, it's clean. So it works out better for everybody. Now, here's where I say tread lightly. A lot of times when a, con a customer of yours, or a, 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 a contractee that you're, you're contracting to, and you're like a sole gun for that guy, like, he, like you don't, you're, he's the only person you're actually contracting to, especially, he sees you more like an employee than you realize. And he has to not compete with you. And he says, I don't care what you do in your own time or whatever. And I'm going to get what I'm paying for, et cetera. Until you start to actually build something. And then jealousy comes up. Or what happens is, I think you're spending too much time on this. And they kind of get the screws put to you. Because what they want is you working for them. And I've seen this happen with people that were really nice guys. But still, it starts to wear out. Especially if, while this is occurring, anything else is wrong in their business. They start looking for pain points, and your success is one of their pain points, even though it has nothing to do with their pain. So be careful. I would say that leveraging your contacts is something you can and should do, but you put, should probably look at trying to do this in a way where the services that you're providing are not directly related to the services that your contractee is providing, the guy that's contracting you is providing. So... Getting into a brokerage-like situation makes a lot of sense, especially in the beginning. What else do customers like the people you interact with need that's loosely related to what you do now but is not considered a competitor, at least above-board competitor? Because the truth is, if you are a company and I sell coffee cups with your brand name on it, You would think that I do not consider a company that sells paper my competitor. I sell novelty cups. They sell paper for the printer, yada, yada. But in the end, that company, because this is what the young Bernie Sanders supporters don't understand, companies don't just have money. They have finite amounts of money. And every single vendor selling to a company that I'm selling to is my competitor because they're competing for money. And there's a, a small, you know, certain amount that's there. And if somebody gets a big deal before I do, they can deplete the budget of what I could have sold into. So it's, everybody's a competitor, but you get what I'm saying. That would be a perfect example. If you were, you know, working for, and I know this is not what you do. You do much something much higher level. I'm trying to break it down so it's easy to understand. If you're working for a company that that sold T-shirts and pens and and cups and stuff with company company branded logos, and you were talking to, and you were a contractor that did that, and you were talking to CEOs and things like that, and CFOs and CMOs, chief marketing officers and directors of marketing to to get those deals. And you ended up brokering a deal and saying, hey, where do you get all, I see paper everywhere here. Where do you get all your paper from? I got a supplier that probably can save you some money. Can I set up a meeting for you? Well, the guy that you were selling the cups for is not pissed. He doesn't care. 
It's almost like, it's like a drop, uh, a, a gas money close afterthought. And you kind of put that business into somebody else's lap and let them work the account. So you're basically like a lead generator or something like that at the point. And, and so that's my question. Like if you're going to start doing this business on the side, how much effort are you going to put into it other than making and establishing the contacts? So because if you're going to so – here's what's going to happen. If you are providing service A for the person paying you, and service B for your customer of that customer. And service A and service B are differentiated enough that it doesn't violate your non-compete. It's not going to be very long before your after-the-sales service to the client takes precedence over your service to the person paying you. The person paying you as a, as a direct contractor. Because you're going to realize, I'm building this. And sooner or later, you're going to want to walk away. So you got to balance that so you keep everything clean. So it's, it's not the easiest thing in the world. The, the, the number one way I've seen people actually make this model work is to make a clean break. To feel out the market, find the opportunity that I can backstall, back install and plug in, save the shit out of my money, be able to make it a year without a paycheck, even if I have to eat some Top Ramen, and make it a good two-week letter of resignation and hit the ground running and, and pour full sail into something new. That's how I've seen it work. And sometimes it helps to find like a financial backer that wants to actually partner in that business with you that says, you know what, I can fund you a salary for, uh, I don't know, 30000 a year for your first year, but then I'm going to have a piece of this company. I mean, you're going to have a partner in this company. Basically, you're going to have to earn your piece through sweat equity. Like that type of thing I've seen work too, but you got to have the right person to partner with. But the clean break is best. Um, I'll tell you this, though, about non-compete clauses. Every time I've been asked to sign a non-compete clause, my one response has been, I need a provision in there that if you terminate my employment against my will, my non-compete clause does not qualify, does not count against me unless I have done something criminal. Unless I've done, and you might have to talk to a lawyer to get it to where you massage it both ways, but, but my view is if you just lay me off, Because you decided you don't need me anymore. And I'm specialized in an industry. And I can't go work in that industry. Bullshit. And I'll tell you how you handle that. If, if it ever came down to it where I had, had to sign. Because there's time when you need a job. And you, you're willing to do it because you need a freaking job. Then <laughs> what I would do is I would start a company. My old nemesis is Death, Inc. And I'll employ somebody as my, my top gun in sales, and I'll just open doors for him. Hey, Tom, remember I used to handle all your widget needs? This is Jack Spirico. Yeah, I'm no longer with ABC Widgets. Yeah, um, I, I'm working with some new people now, and uh, I was wondering if, if my, uh, my, my friend uh, Sam could give you a call, and if you'd maybe take his call for me. He'll tell you what it's about when he calls you. And I would run it up their ass. I would take every single account away. If you did me wrong and then try to push me out of my own industry for two years or something like that. And, and I know I have a family member that this exact thing is happening to right now. He was very successful in his company. He got to a point where they didn't really, I don't think they really wanted him anymore. Because he had too much loyalty of his people. He got in one too many accidents, 
but like none of them were his fault, but for their insurance. So, so technically by the book, they, they had to let him go, but it wasn't the kind of thing that they couldn't go, you know what, we can make an exception here. They just did it. Uh, after over 10 years of, of dedicated work to the company, and he had a two-year non-compete clause. And unfortunately for that company, his two years is up. And he's in exactly the situation I talked about now. He's got a backer that's willing to front him a salary for a year and say, what do you need? Go take it all back. And he's very, very good at what he does. Very good at what he does. And all that loyalty, yes, yeah, he needs people, he can just pull them over. So I think non-compete clauses are not all they're cracked up to be. There's always ways around them, and they do a lot of harm. And I don't like them. But I understand why they exist. Let's take another one. Uh, well, first I'm going to tell you, because I don't talk about this a lot, and if you're newer to the show, like in the last three years even, unless you've heard this as an aside, you might not even know. I did a podcast, did over 100 episodes, that are available in perpetuity at jackspeaker.com. I stopped doing them because it was just too much to add to it. The show was called Five Minutes with Jack, and it quickly became 15 to 20 Minutes with Jack. And I talked about all different ways to to make money on the Internet and how to build businesses on the Internet on there. And uh, it's it's very useful. And, and basically what I've said, and, and no one's ever actually done it yet, is people say they want more of it. And I said, well, when you come to me and show me a business where you've implemented every strategy that I've given there that makes sense for your business anyway, you're doing everything the way I said, and you're not successful and you need more, I'll give you more. And, and no one's ever done that yet. So that tells me that either the people looking at it are getting what they need out of it and getting going and making some money, or um, they're what I call intellectual masturbators. They like more and more information about stuff and dreaming about doing it someday, but they don't actually do it. Um, and, and those are the people that are taken advantage of by the things that you're talking about, where people, you know, put together a course for $997. You're going to become a millionaire in your underwear or whatever. And if you give that a sniff test, you know, right away. And it sounds like you've given some of these a sniff tests and said, this is not, this is not going to work. And I'll tell you the truth is a lot of those those things actually can work. And if you apply them properly, they, they can make you money, especially if you don't follow the example of the person that's selling it to you and sell more products on how to make money online, but actually apply their techniques to selling other things. But most of it is available for free on my website, jackspearco.com. And I'd start with episode one and I would go from there. There were some videos that were on that site that when uh, Vimeo, I think it was, or whoever, Vivo or somebody I was hosting video with um, changed. Uh, they went away and I've never put them back and I probably won't, but the audio is there for everything. Um, I, I think that the problem is that people just come at this from the standpoint, I want to make money online. Okay, that's... That's going to lead you to a lot of frustration because you're going to judge every single thing you do based on, well, did this make me money? I think most people would look at Survival Podcast and say, what Jack's done with Survival Podcast is a, a great way to make money online. It's a great way to build a business online. It's, it's, it's a highly successful business. He's able to fund his entire life from his podcast. So I want to do that. Okay. When I started this show, I was an expert at internet marketing. I call myself now a former expert in internet marketing because I'm working with like 2010, 2012 technology in 2016. And it, it does, you know, I learned about something today from a person in comment called uh, a rich pin for Pinterest. And this new SEO extension, I, I can't remember what it's called. I'll put a link to it, though, in the show notes for those that want to follow up on that versus the all-in-one SEO pack that I use 
that actually works good for rich pins, whatever those are. So it's a perfect example of somebody said, well, I don't really know much, but I heard this. And I'm going, I didn't even know that. Right. So understand that this technology evolves and moves forward. But when I started this show, for all the advantage I had, I made zero dollars from June of 2008 until February of 2009, a little over seven months. And when I launched the MSB, I think we made like $20,000 in the first 30 days. And my wife's like, holy crap, you can quit your job now. I'm like, not yet. That was a big basketball through the pipeline, and now we have to build from there. And uh, it was the case, and it took another year after that before I walked away. So it took me uh, a year and seven months to build a podcast to where it didn't replace my income, but it made us enough income that I knew I could do it full-time and build it into something really good. And that was starting out as an internet marketing expert. Let's talk a little bit about how I became an internet marketing expert and, and why I, I'm telling you to be a little bit more understanding of why I can't just tell you what to do. In the 90s, I found a company called Cognizant Networks, which was a network marketing company, which many of you know I don't like network marketing companies. But it was free to join. You sold real products, and you made all your money by actually selling products. And the commissions to the seller were very fair. And the overrides to people above you in the organization were quite small. So I looked at it and went, if this didn't have an MLM attached to it, I'd still do it. Right, Because it was selling things like cell phones and long-distance services, even T1 services and things like that, which I was a technology expert and I knew, but I wasn't an Internet marketing expert. And I remember listening to all the training calls, and I eventually became a trainer in this company, but in the beginning just thinking, why won't you just tell me what to put on my website? Why won't you just tell me what code to use? Why won't you tell me which keywords to use? Why won't? And, and the reality was, well, there's, there's thousands and thousands of affiliates marketing the same thing. You have to find your own individual niche. If you do it exactly like your competitor, you're going to get nailed for duplicate content and thrown out of the search engines, and it doesn't work that way. You have to develop your own angle, your own niche, your own process. And as I began to understand that, I began to broaden myself beyond the, the products that, that this company had, and I began to learn how to optimize a page how links worked, and how that would get me ranked in the search engines. And I didn't really make much money. My first check from Cognizant was $63, and $50 of it was a Dish Network product that I had bought for myself. So it was a starting point. A couple of years into it, I was doing this parallel to working for a company called Fluke Networks as their regional sales VP. I'm sure they would have not been happy had they known I was doing this. But I started to see this corollary between working for a tech company during a tech recession in 2001, 2002, and uh, the ability of the Internet to do things that larger companies hadn't figured out yet. So all I did was, like, I would go do these on-the-road things for, like, uh, two months at a time and then go back to normal sales calls on the road for two months at a time. And during this period of time, we would set up classes. So I would go in and I would give a class on testing and cable and stuff like that. And... We would give out uh, CEUs, Continuing education, uh, education Units, the people that were RCDDs and Bixie Certified Techs and all needed a certain amount of these every year. So if you could get it marketed well, you could fill the seats with people, and they'd get demos and go back to their companies, and you, you could get sales. So I started building these simple landing pages to, incur to, to market like the fact that we were going to be in Richmond. And, and, and it would, I would set them up so it was like three or four speakers at a hotel. The company would fund that. They didn't even know about the web presence. And we would fill them up without the, the inside salesperson killing themselves to put people in the seat that had been in the seat a hundred times. 
So I learned how to do that. And from there, I springboarded into other things. I learned how to do things like Google AdSense, which is really not a great ad uh, revenue model now. And I, I, I developed into a person that could take a podcast and make it financially viable. And if you are in your early 20s and you're on this mission, you're where I was when I was 30. That means by the time you're 30, you should be beyond where I am today. You can learn faster than me. You, you have a reasonable amount of money and income to be able to put aside $5,000 a year to run a business and, and make it make enough money to market yourself after that. But you need to be willing to understand that what you're asking me to do is tell you how to do something that requires 20 little skills that you haven't developed yet. I mean, you need to start with how do I make a website? How do I how do I edit video? How do I edit audio? I don't even care if you're not going to run a podcast or whatever. You're going to use video in your marketing. You you need to learn how to do good photography. You need to learn how to use Pinterest. You need to learn how to use Facebook beyond telling somebody that you made a peanut butter sandwich. You need to be able to but but the, before you do any of that, you need to say to yourself, what's something I could build some content on that I'd be happy to build some content on? Don't worry if you're going to make any money with it. When, when I was in the 90s, I was kind of going through my whole separation from organized faith. And I'd found an author named James Redfield. And I made a book, a, a website about his book called The Celestine Prophecy. Called, and the site's called Celestine View. It's a terrible site. It was made in Microsoft front page. It was the first website I ever built. Looks like crap. Makes no money. Never made me a dime. Still sitting there. Just left it. So if anybody wants to look at it, you can go out and look at it and see how crappy I started out. Because that shows you the progression. But I learned to make a website. And then I thought to myself, well, nobody comes to my site. How do I get them to come there? So I learned SEO or search engine optimization. And I ended up, it doesn't anymore because I haven't done anything with it since 99 when I made it. But I ended up outranking the author for his own book title and for his own name for quite a number of years. So I taught myself with something that was more like, I don't care if it makes money. I just want to know how this internet thing works. And then I started saying to myself, how can I monetize it? And I found Google AdSense platform and what have you. So I think you have to look at this more like a mission. So if it happens to be that whatever you start creating your content on becomes your business, that's great. But but I think you need to, like, the first thing I hear you do is two different things. I want to know how to make a business, and I want to know how to have a job. There's no good jobs that you just, like, fill out a form, sign up for, and get paid to do something online. Right, You actually have to find a company that wants to hire you, and then your job's online. But all that is is employ online employment. right? So there's a, the akin to marketing the uh, stuff envelopes at home scam of the 70s and 80s, you know, or assemble products at home, and there was these information packets that you would order. They advertised these little newspaper ads for like 20 bucks. It was all bullshit, and it basically said to do what the person was doing that got your money, to just basically advertise the same bullshit. And basically repurpose their content and do it yourself, right? So that that's not sustainable. So there's like online shit today that's like the the evolution of that, you know, make money uh, posting blog posts or whatever. There used to be a way to do that, and Google ruined it. Evil bastards. Um, it was called paper post, and and people were making good side incomes with it, and Google destroyed it because they could and they wanted to. Um, so you need to define what area in life you want to build a business around 
and then develop a business model and then determine how the internet fits with that model. You know, I mean, that's, that's the reality here. What do you, like, remember what I said in the show I did this week about a business? A business is only a business if it adds and provides value. So what area do you want to provide value to? How will you provide that value? What will you do? Because it could be simple. It could be reviewing products and then providing Amazon links. That's, if that's all you do, it's a very long path to success. But if you provide value and information and education, and then after you build a following, start to send traffic through something like an Amazon affiliate link, it becomes one source of income. But in the end, the Internet's all about eyes. People that pay attention to you, listen to you, look at you. The more you have, the more you can do with them. So I don't know. I know that doesn't just give you an answer, but the answer is there is no single answer. It, 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 it's going to come down to developing both a skill set and a mission and a direction within a niche. And I'll save for later why. But yes, if you if you can figure out what your passion is, follow it. I'll leave it at that for now. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. This is Aaron up in uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, Two questions, very separate issues. Mike Rowe Foundation, what do you think of that? He's a guy that actually preaches the statement, don't follow your passion, uh, cites many examples of it in his dirty jobs thing. Uh, and also the Bo Bergdahl case, the guy that was captured by the Taliban after leaving his post in Afghanistan. Um, not really a survival topic, but just kind of interesting thing. I wanted to hear your take because of your Army experience. I know what I think of it from my Army experience. I was just uh, curious about yours. Bye. You sneaky sneak getting two questions in this this complex and one question and do it in under a minute, so I feel obligated to answer both. Uh, let's start out with the Mike Rowe thing. As I said, I would hold off on the follow your passion thing because of another call, and it was this call. And yes, they came in in this order, and this coincidence type thing happens all the time. So here's the deal. Jack Spirgo says, if you're going to build a business, follow your passion in life. Mike Rowe says, don't be afraid of shitty work. Do what you can do with what you have and make it happen. Because you don't know what you, you you don't know what you don't know, and 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 all of his travels and doing the show dirty jobs, he's seen people doing jobs that nobody else wants that are quite successful at them, and you could be successful. Here's the thing: we're both right, and we're coming at this from different angles. When I say follow your passion, I'm not saying if you are 26 years old, uh, father with a couple kids, and uh, you're doing a job you don't like. Uh, and there's an opportunity to make more money doing another job you don't like, uh, wait till something that fits your passion comes along and, and don't take the better opportunity. That's, that's so far from what I'm saying. So far from what I'm saying. In that situation, you, you, you pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you shut the F up, and you go take care of your family. And that's the exact advice I would give my own son. Okay? So in that instance, Mike Rowe and I agree with each other. 
whatever the opportunity is, if it's better than what you have and you don't have any pathway toward anything else for right now, you're not working on anything else right now, you don't know what you want to do, you haven't identified your passion, for instance, or you haven't even figured out how you would pursue your passion from a business standpoint, you take the opportunities that are there. I did. Okay, now, it's 2016. One person can reach a million people in a day with the right tactics. There's literally nothing that if you work at it can't be monetized. Nothing. Why in the hell would you not follow your passion? Again, there's no evident path to it right now and you need an opportunity. Okay? <laughs> Two, um, you're dead broke and you need money. Three, you don't know what your passion is. In all of those instances, Mike Rowe is completely correct. If you're in a situation where you can pay your bills, you're about to embark on a quest like this last young man to develop an income stream and develop a business that will let you walk away from work. And you could do it with just about anything today if you work hard enough and you give enough and you and you really you eat and you breathe it for a couple of years and you're patient. You're patient and say, I'm gonna, uh, and, but you're dedicated. It's not this bullshit where you start a blog up and like 45 days later, I know I should blog more. When I get to somebody's blog and that's their last post, I don't even go back to the blog. You're admitting you don't give a shit about what you do, so why should I give a shit about what you have to say? The most difficult thing to get from somebody online today is not their money, it's their time. Remember that. So for you to dedicate yourself to whatever it is, to put in the time and the effort, to build something so powerful that it becomes a success, why wouldn't you do something you love? The other opportunity, the other reason is because there is an incredible opportunity that's not necessarily your passion. There was a guy that posted in response to the home business, uh, small business you can start on a small amount of money that I did this week. And he's in a medical gas business. And he basically did what the contractor guy was talking about. And said, I know people, I know the business. I, know, now, I don't know if, if, if medical gas is like, you know, oxygen and nitrous and stuff like that. Or in this case, passion or not. His passion might be people, it might be sales, it might be marketing, right? It might be service. And then the product may be secondary to the fact that I'm out talking to people, whatever. But what he said is, I walked away, went by the skin of my teeth for a year, Now we have multiple people working for us. We're hiring. And when we get an account, our competitors are done. They're one-dimensional. We get in the door. We own it. Okay. He had the knowledge, the opportunity, the connections, the financial knowledge, the marketing knowledge, everything. So in that instance, if he doesn't really give a shit about gas for medical use, then I'd do that anyway. Because it makes sense. But if, if you've made a decision that I don't want to be where I am, don't go somewhere else you don't want to be either. So I think we're both right. Now, Bo Bagdall. Um, and by the way, it's Mike Rowe. I'm, not, I'm the last person to correct people on um, pronunciation there, uh, talking back to the caller. But um, since it's a very well-known celebrity, Mike Rowe, People might have listened to that and go, who's he talking about? So, yeah, Mike Rowe. So, uh, Bo Bergdahl, um, Sergeant Bo Bergdahl, who actually was a private first class when he disappeared. Um, 
I have very mixed emotions about this. Right now, his attorneys are looking like they're going to make a defense of, of basically mental illness. And if you know what happens in a war zone, it's a pretty good defense. Even if they would say he's right of faculties now. In other words, he was out of his mind when he walked away. And there's a lot of discrepancy about how he walked away. He said he was with a patrol. He got lost. Uh, it's been claimed that he got drunk and, and wandered around off post. There's a couple different explanations about this. But I think that a guy that leaves his post in Afghanistan and goes out into the open country of Afghanistan, even if he wants to desert his post, where he will be hated and risk his life if captured, um, is not in, in, in the right frame of mind. I don't think it's like a guy, like, you, you don't think for a minute you're going to go over to the Taliban and go, hey guys, I want to defect. They're going to be, oh, okay, come on in. Like, it's, it's not like somebody that went across the, the wall in Berlin to the east and, and pledged their oath to, to the Soviet Union and the Iron Curtain. It, it's a totally different, it's a hot shooting war. So, you know you're likely to end up dead by doing this, and you do it anyway. So I think there's at least something to that. But I, I think that very little of the actual story of the mindset of this young man has been told and what was really going on and the advice he received back from his parents. And it's, there's a public printing of the email with some redaction that's on Wikipedia, and I'm going to read it to you. This was sent by Bo to his parents on June 7, 2009, uh, in an email. Mom, Dad, the future is too good to waste on lies. And life is way too short to care for the damnation of others, as well as to spend it helping fools and their ideas that are wrong. I have seen their ideas, and I am ashamed to even be American. The horror of self-righteous arrogance that they thrive in, it's all revolting. Three good sergeants have been forced to move to another company, and one of the biggest shitbags is being put in charge of the team. My battalion commander was a conceited old fool, and the U.S. Army, you are cut down for being honest. But if you are a conceited, brown-nosing shitbag, you will be allowed to do whatever you want, and you will be handed your higher rank. The system is wrong. I am ashamed to be an American. And the title of U.S. soldier is just the lie of fools. The U.S. Army is the biggest joke in the world has to laugh at. It is the army of liars, backstabbers, fools, and bullies. The few good sergeants are getting out as soon as they can. I'm sorry for everything here. These people need help, yet what they get is the most conceited country in the world telling them that they are nothing and that they are stupid and that they have no idea how to live. We don't even care when we hear each other talk about running their children down in the dirt streets with our armored trucks. We make fun of them in front of their faces and laugh at them for not understanding that we are insulting them. I am sorry for everything. The horror that is America is disgusting. There are a few more boxes coming to you guys. Feel free to open them and use them. Bo Bergdahl responded to his, Bob Bergdahl responded to his son's final message not long after he received it. In all caps, exclamation point, obey your conscience. Followed by that, dear Bo, in matters of life and death, and especially at war, it is never safe to ignore one's conscience. Ethics demand obedience to our conscience. It is best to also have a systemic oral defense or what our conscience demands. 
Stand with like-minded men when possible, Dad. And you can read the rest of the story if you want to. This is what I believe about what's gone on in the Middle East as a whole as part of the war on terror. Some of the best men in the world have given the best of their lives to do what they believe in. And some really shitty people are there with them. And it's a luck of the draw who you're going to be with. And these abuses that Bergdahl says occurred, like running children over the streets with armored cars, let me tell you something. They happen. I've talked to enough honest veterans to know that they happen. And you have to ask yourself what that does to the mind of someone if they really did believe in what they were doing when they went. I don't think it's as simple as just shitting on somebody He's a deserter. He's a treasonist. Hang him. The nonsense that's coming out, especially of the right, with no understanding. How many of you never heard that before? That last email that Bo sent to his his parents. Regardless of what you think, don't you think it's the most telling, germane thing to the story about the state of mind? Even if you say, that proves it. He's a deserter. Okay, fine. But don't you think it would have made sense for that to have been given more coverage? Don't you think it would have made sense? I, I heard many times in the media a troubling email sent from, from Bergdahl to his father. But I actually never heard anybody on mainstream media read it and actually discuss, well, what does that mean? Is it if, if, how about this discussion for America? If the man was telling the truth in his email, no matter what you think about his actions afterward, if American soldiers or Marines or what have you, have ever run down a child in the street with an armored car. What does that say about what we're doing to our men that we have asked to serve us? If they're either permitted to do this or getting into states of mind where they're willing to do this, or if there is the small fraction that we're told to commit these abuses, but yet they're protected and nothing is done about it, what is it doing to the minds of those who serve with honor? We don't have these discussions. You know why? A lot of you are angry at me right now. A lot of you are, that's why we don't have these discussions. Because it's not pretty. It doesn't fit the meme that all soldiers are heroes. You might have heard a word in there that, that Bo used a couple times. Shitbags. That might have offended you. Let me tell you something. That's a soldier's word for shitbag soldiers. And it's not new. Oh no, my friends, that is not new. All the way back in 1990, when I was a soldier, there were people that we served alongside of that collectively we said, that's a shit bag. It is about the lowest, lowest insult that you can throw at another soldier, especially when it's true and they know it. There's a word I don't use on the show, but... The code for it's Blue Falcon. That's about the only thing as bad or worse as a shitbag. You can figure out what Blue Falcon means for yourself, or you can look it up if you don't know. I'm not defending the actions that this guy took, but I can tell you that if I was sitting on a jury and a defense attorney made a case that this guy's mind was screwed up from everything that was going on around him, 
and he wandered off aimlessly with no idea of what he was really doing at the time, I wouldn't necessarily just believe it, but I would be open to it. And I think that in this instance, military justice is what it is. And the process needs to be allowed to work itself through and work itself out. And I will tell you my opinion of military courts martial, having had a friend that went through uh, a trial and was found innocent, by the way. I won't get into the details, but it's a pretty serious thing. I believe that if you are innocent, you are probably better off in a military court than a civilian court today. And I believe if you're guilty, you're probably worse off in a military court than a civilian court today. So what I'm saying is I believe that military courts in general, not always, are actually more fair than civilian courts. And I've watched enough you know, late night TV and what have you that I kind of think that if my friend that I served with had been in a civilian court with the right dumbass jury, he could have been convicted where he was absolutely cleared of all charges. So... I don't know. I think this is one of those ones that none of us really know. And we can all pretend to know. We can all armchair quarterback it. But instead of having a conversation with your military veteran friends who've served in the Middle East about Bo Bergdahl, who is absolutely polarizing. And many people that went through all the same shit say, well, I didn't, I didn't walk away from my buddies. So they're so pissed they feel a need to defend it, if you don't have the divisive conversation, what was it like? What was the worst thing about it? Did you ever see something that made you wish you weren't there other than what the enemy did? You get honest answers from veterans, you'll realize this damn thing is not as black and white as the TV would lead you to believe. That we can be the bad guys at times. And it amazes me that people get upset with me when I say that, who don't trust anything the government does. But when men are fighting a foreign war, they do. Please think about that. I'm not coming down one side or the other here. I'm coming down in the middle. I'm willing to say that I don't know. But I'm also willing to say that it looks to me like this guy was tore up over what was going on. And if a soldier in the same situation will take a gun and put it in his mouth and blow the back of his head off, which we know, is hap we know happens, and we'll all say, the guy was messed up. You know, he didn't want to kill himself. He, he, he couldn't handle it. He flipped. God, I wish we could have found it first and helped him so he's not dead. And we, don't, we think it's out of, the, out of the realm of possibility that somebody in the same state of mind might have said it's not killing himself. Just wander off. Because I guarantee you, for everything that was wrong with this guy, he didn't think the Taliban were a bunch of nice guys that were going to welcome him. That I'm pretty sure of. Now everybody's mad at me. Let's take another one. Brother Spearco, hello from Kentucky. My buddies call me Ox. Question. What are mechanics, what are things that would be beneficial for me to be aware of as I begin a job search and negotiations with potential employers? Background. I'm wrapping up PA school in Kentucky. The PA profession started in the 60s with four Navy corpsmen, and now there are over 100,000 certified PAs in the country. Like our doctor colleagues, we are trained in the medical model, 
with year-round bookwork and then extensive full-time clinical rotations. You'll find this in every specialty. We can see our own patients, write prescriptions in all 50 states, and we collaborate with other healthcare providers for outstanding patient outcomes. Me, I'm open to both full-time and part-time opportunities, working either as an independent contractor or employee. It just depends. The entities I'll likely negotiate with range from large companies or hospitals to small practices with, say, 15 to 25 employees. Thank you very much. Lots of love you, brother. See ya. On some level, I want to say, I don't know. I mean, you know your industry better than me. Um, I, I think that what you need initially is a good-paying job to probably pay off the crushing debt you're under. And the good news is there's lots of opportunity. And a PA, for people who know, is a physician's assistant. It's like doctor, it's like MD light, right? You can do a lot of things doctors can do. Um, and there's so many places right now that are hiring PAs to save money, and they're highly efficient operations that make good money. Uh, the Care Now facilities are a perfect example. Uh, nine times out of ten, if you go into a Care Now uh, the person that comes into the room to actually examine you and give you a prescription or whatever and, and diagnose you is a, is a PA, not an MD. And they charge a lot of money for the convenience. Um, ER work and, and those, like, those quick clinics are probably the best paying opportunities that are out there. And they allow you to get ex experience practicing. So I, I would actually look at this point to maximize income. You're still young. I can tell by your voice you're excited about what you do. Um, you've got a lot of energy. You, you you probably have a lot of time. I mean, if you've been going through this school, you haven't exactly been living like the ultimate social life because this is a tough school. It, it, it really is. So you're kind of in a mode now where you're ready to hit the ground running. If you have to work 60 hours a week, you'll do it. Do that. Get out of debt. First step. Get out of debt, build experience, build a practice, and learn your industry. What you know now is the, the how-to. That's what you go to school to learn, how to do your job. So what you need to now learn as you go into employment is the what of your job, the why of your job. The biggest things I'd look for are two. One, since you're probably in debt, what pays best? But two, what can you learn? And I would take kind of the gunslinger approach for the next couple of years. If you get into a job, it's paying you good money, but you've exhausted what it will teach you. You get into the point where you could just do that job with your, your eyes closed almost. And I'm not talking about just the, the medical aspects of it, but the administrative aspects, uh, uh, dealing with patients, dealing with whatever. And you come up with an opportunity that pays about the same or a little less or a little more that will teach you new things, Go. Have no loyalty to shit except yourself, the advancement of your income, and the advancement of your skill set initially. I know that sounds selfish, but it works. And it, it, your first jobs are going to be jobs that people get hired out of you know, school for with, with no practical experience. There's another person. It's not like when you leave, the world's going to end, and that company's going to go out of business, and people are going to die. They're just going to hire somebody else. Don't, don't overestimate your value to anybody because they won't invest, overestimate their value, your value to them if they ever need to get rid of you. Get rid of you like that. 
So I think an ER gives you a lot of experience dealing with a lot of different things. I think it's I, I almost would say, like initially, you could probably bridge those two. Working in like a, a quick care facility and an ER. And then figure shit out from there. But it, while you're figuring shit out, make money. Because this stuff pays well. I mean, that's the one thing about it you got going for you. There's no shortage of work, and the pay is good. Have no fear moving. You know, unless you're really rooted to like a wife or something like that, go where the action is, go where the money is, go where the opportunity is, and try to figure out, well, what do I want to become in this industry? Because there's a lot of different ways to take this industry from there. But I can't tell you what to do because you don't even know what you want yet. But that's my initial advice to you. If you were my son, I would have given you the same advice I just gave you now. All right, let's take another one. Hey, Jack. This is Josh. Um, I have a question about uh, overseeding and um, uh, forage. Uh, I am going to have to have a new septic uh, installed. It has failed. And so I'm going to have my backyard completely dug up and uh, and, and disturbed. My goal is to uh, make this a forage area for uh, my chickens, rabbits, and quail. I don't know if I'm going to be free-ranging them on this. Uh, they've got a pretty good-sized run. Uh, I was thinking I could probably get out there with the size, uh, me or uh, one of my daughters, every day or so, and, uh, and, and just, you know, cut some down and, and feed it to the, uh, to the animals every day to try to keep that under control. But my question is, um, what do I want to plant? I am in the Houston area, uh, north of Houston. I've got uh, fantastic... Uh, compacted plate soil, so and that's all going to be disturbed by the uh, by the septic and the drain field installation. So um, I've got a uh, a cover crop mixture with peas and beans, and I think a couple of annual ryegrasses from GrowOrganic.com um, that I was planning on using uh, in my front yard. So I'm sure I can do something with that. Um, but I was I also am interested in building the soil there uh, as well. So um, just wondering what your thoughts were on um, on overseeding that uh, for forage and soil building. Um, is there uh, is, is this something that's going to need to be annual so that I'll have to plant every year, or are there some um, uh, some perennials out there that would also be a good choice? Uh, let me know what you think. The uh, the size of the area is going to be about a sixth of an acre. I'm on a third of an acre lot. My front yard and backyard are about the same size, so uh, it'll, be a third, it'll be a sixth of an acre minus uh, you know the rabbit tree and uh, a couple of sheds. So anyway, it's a pretty small area. Um, thanks a lot, Jack. I appreciate it and look forward to hearing your answer. Okay, you kind of hit it on it yourself there at the end, right? So every plant you mentioned seeding are fine for what they do, but they're all annuals. What that means is they're all going to die, and when they die, if you haven't planned for what comes next, you're going to have bare soil, you're going to go back to compaction, uh, which, I mean, the opportunity you have here is all your compaction is going to be decompacted for you by someone else, right? So... Um, in the end, this is like an opportunity to really create kind of that little mini pasture you're talking about. Um, you're in Houston, um, so you're going to get adequate rainfall, and you're going to get just about anything you want that's a southern species to grow. 
You can look at uh, varieties of alfalfa for your area, and I don't have like all the different varieties of alfalfa uh, memorized. But you basically want the the like non-dormant alfalfa because you're not getting cold enough there for it to you to want it to go totally dormant because uh, that's very deep rooted and it is perennial. And it will come back time and time again. Clovers. So you can look at white Dutch and New Zealand clover as as an example of what you could do. Dixie red reseeding. These are all either uh, perennials or biannuals that self reseed. So like a mix with that in there. Uh, Postrate uh, uh, bird's foot trefoil would be another. But you need to get a perennial grass into there. You know whatever it is you want that to be. Whether it's you know something that people are horrified of like Bermuda. The thing about Bermuda is it, it does do a pretty good job of choking everything else out. But a good like perennial rye, like annual rye is great. Like so, like hitting it with annual ryegrass, buckwheat and cowpea, for like when it first is done, that's fine. But the buckwheat lives six to eight weeks, cowpea lives for one season, and ryegrass is annual, so it's gonna kind of just actually get taken over. And so I would use that stuff very sparingly. It, it, it can help hold the soil while other things come in. But I would really want to get a good perennial rye, uh, like Kentucky fescue or something like that might be what you might look at getting in there, uh, or, or some other grass. And then I would look at other things that create kind of the salad bar effect. So I would look at getting uh, maybe get some tonic plantain uh, seed because you can get that in quantity. But if you can get up, like if you just like you can start collecting seed now. Like if you're walking in the spring, a lot of stuff goes to seed. If you find any types of plantain. Harvest seed from it, because even just a little bit of establishment in your property will then self-perpetuate. Um, another thing you might find right now growing is wild garlic, uh, and pulling that up and keeping it wrapped in a refrigerator. You can plug those little uh, bulbs in the ground. Uh, wild garlic, wild onions are another thing you can use to diversify uh, that area. Uh, I mean, there's a lot. You can, dandelions are about to go ape. Um, I know some people hate dandelion. I love for for forage. Are you kidding me? Dynamic accumulator. Are you kidding me? Right. So you, you could then go out and, and start looking for puffball dandelions, and just pluck your puffballs and put them in a bag, and then just when that's done, just let it loose. Right. Get that established. You could even pull up dandelions uh, and replant them. You know, you don't do that until it's ready to go. I can't believe he's saying to transplant dandelions. Well, the man wants forage for chickens. Right? And he wants diversity, and he wants something that's perennial. Chicory uh, is another great perennial that you can uh, you can use. I mean, you can go to goorganic.com and, and click on uh, cover crops and go to perennial cover crops, and everything you see there is a perennial. Um, again, clovers, I definitely would want to get in into the mix, plantains, chicories, uh, things like that. So, I mean, that's kind of where I'd be at. But you do need a grass in there. Uh, and you, you if, if, if you just blanket this, With buckwheat and cowpea, it's going to grow into this mass jungle, and then it's all going to just freaking die. And and the buckwheat is going to choke everything else out for about two months, and then just die, right? So you can do that. You can kind of take a twofold approach and go in and put down like a, a true cover crop, and then at time of your choosing, like you mentioned, the scythe. Seed it with your perennials and go in there and scythe it down and drop it on top of it. 
and that'll work for you. It'll dry up. It'll basically harrow it. By the time it dries up, the seeds are germinating. Make sure you water it during that period of time and success it that way. Though the cowpea will keep coming back until your first frost. It's very, very aggressive. But the buckwheat's done. Right? So you can do that. Another plant that I would definitely include in this that isn't annual but will sell for seed for you is daikon radish. But if you're going to have this work done soon, you're going into the summer, you can throw a little bit down, but how much of it will work out, I don't know. But you can overseed that again as you go into, like, September. You head toward fall. Great time to seed daikon radish. Mustards are another good thing. There's nothing wrong with seeding, you know, bulk vegetables that are greens that will reseed, like mustards uh, and chard and stuff like that. A lot of times if you find a feed store, you can go in and have bulk seed bins. And you can get like a big scoop of carrot seed or a big scoop of lettuce seed or a big scoop of all these different stuff for three to four bucks for a big scoop. And on a sixth of an acre, you know, a big scoop of five or six different vegetables mixed in with all this other stuff, if if 5% of it grows, great. If 5% of it grows, you let it go to seed and it starts reseeding, awesome. You know, so the other thing to realize is if you take good care of this soil, because uh, it's, it's soil even if you think it's clay. There's, there's, there's value to it. There's, there's a gazillion seeds in there right now that are waiting for what you would call a germination trigger. And there's, there's major germination triggers are compaction, decompaction, fire, and moisture. These are your, 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 your major Uh, germination triggers that actually trigger soil to germinate seed that might have been there for five, ten years or more. So when you decompact it, you're going to have a certain amount of germination trigger just in what's already sitting in there. So if you're able to, to get these other plants growing, you'll actually encourage the growth of everything else. I would also really look at getting yourself a couple gallons of something like Garrett juice, uh, which should be available locally at like an organic gardening center, and investing in a sprayer, and the day they're done and you seed it, uh, dilute it per instructions, and I'm not talking about drenching. I'm talking about a gentle spray, like a backpack sprayer. Spray the whole place with Garrett juice. And at about two weeks in, when everything's coming up and just starting to grow, break out that other gallon and do it again. Uh, consider a good organic... Um, fertilizer as well. And I actually, I'm going to pause the recording and run out to the front porch and find the name brand of this product that I know about that's available in Houston from one of the guys who's been to a couple of my workshops. It's called uh, Micro Life Ultimate, and I, I think it's made right there in Houston. Uh, you can go buy it direct for about a 50-pound sack for about 50 bucks. And it's not just a, a good organic fertilizer. It has a tremendous amount of uh, mycorrhizal fungi and other beneficial uh micro micro life in it that's what they call it that and uh i've used it here and the places i've used it versus the place i haven't have really blown up so i would take the approach of, of establishing the seed mix you want making sure there's perennial components to it to success into um as soon as the work's done getting it seeded and a sixth of an acre would be some work but you can rake it in a little bit or just at least walk through it and push the seed in with your feet I would hit it probably a sixth of an acre, probably with about 50 pounds, well spread out of this uh, of this fertilizer that I've mentioned, and um, I would probably also get a hold of a good amount of uh, dry molasses, and I would spread that 
and, and possibly even um, that, that would be about it. And, and then I don't know how much you would need, but if you could find a source of untreated straw, something that hasn't been hit with glyphosate or something like that, uh, if you could cover the whole area, then with straw you're going to have much better germination rate and water go out and spend the money and buy like the whirly bird sprinklers or whatever you need and for at least the first two weeks give it some water every day if it doesn't rain if it rains then you're good and houston you know you get a lot of rain you do that and you won't recognize the place next year and it's it's a lot of the same approach we've taken here um for all of the daikon radish and mustard and stuff like that the the biggest focus has been getting grass to grow If you get grass to grow, you get stuff to grow in the grass. You know, I mean, so, so again, look for like a, a good fescue or annual rye or something like that as, as a base for this. And then get a lot of your perennial herbs established before that grass becomes a, a, a full turf. So when you start grass, like the first season, it never really looks like turf. Like you've got all these plants growing themselves, and every time you cut it, You create swords and basically grass coppices. So you cut one blade of grass, and when it grows back from the base, it, it comes out with four or five or six, and you do it again, and it keeps multiplying. That way it starts sending runners and doing its thing, right? But if you get chicory, which is a biannual that self-recedes, if you get plantain, if you get these other herbs and these other self-receding perennials and uh, self-receding annuals and, and, and perennial herbs and clovers in while there's space for them and they establish, they're not going anywhere. Dandelion too, man, I'm telling you. I, it's so awkward here. We have no dandelions on the property. I'm, I'm living for the day that a dandelion grows on my property. And uh, I'm hoping to go down to Arlington where I know there's tons of dandelions soon to get a bunch of fresh dandelions to make some dandelion mead. And I'm telling you, anything that's a, a puffball, it's coming back here, and we'll hell marry it again and see if it happens. I think I think this is the year of the dandelion for us. So everybody else trying to get eradicate dandelions, I want them to grow. I want them to grow. Anyway, uh, got two. I got one more for you today. Hey Jack, this is Brian in North Texas. Had a question on these roses that you're planting. Um, the mite out there that's causing this rose rosetta disease that as far as I can tell affects all roses. I'm just curious if uh, it's affecting the uh, rosa ragusas and want the ones that you're planting or it's just a newer cultivars on there. Anyway, love to hear your thoughts. Appreciate it. Wow, talk about diversity for a show today. That's our last call of the day, and I don't think you can get as much diverse as talking about the Oregon shooting, army desertionists, physicians' assistants, building a business, uh, cover cropping, following your passion, $100 bills, and dog tethers, and roses. I mean, what a great show. So anyway, um, this is actually a really good case when when it comes to Uh, planting for both medicinal use, uh, for culinary use, and for just the beauty of roses, for Rosa Ragusa. Um, there's a mite, I can't remember what it's called, but uh, it's, it's a, a, a nasty little mite that transmits um, this, this, uh, this disease in roses. And, and what happens is so the, the mites get it on themselves, basically, and then they chew on a rose, and they infect it. And then they 
go to the next rose and they chew on it and they infect it. And once they infect a rose, it's done. It's like, you think of it like chestnut blight, right? For the chestnuts. Like, you can cut it to the ground, it'll, it'll spring back up, but it'll be infected and it'll spread the infection. And nothing you ever do will ever get rid of it ever. So if you find it on a plant, you have to kill the plant. And if you don't, it will infect other plants. There's a belief uh, that some seem to have that it is uh, effective of all rose species, where in fact, Rosa ragusa is apparently either highly, highly, highly resistant to it or completely immune to it. Now, there's multifloral rose, which often gets confused. It's a wild species, some call it invasive, that, that gets confused with Rosa ragusa because they're both wild forms of rose. And, but they're very, very different because we have Rosa ragusa, R-O-G-U-S-A, uh, I'm sorry, R-U-G-O-S-A, Rosa ragusa, and then we have Rosa multiflora. Well, these are different, different plants. And the multiflora rose, which is considered an invasive problem, is highly susceptible. And it's one of the, the problems it's creating now is if you have these, this wild Rosa multiflora growing around you and you have domesticated roses on your property, the mites infest the hell out of the multiflora rose and it, it creates this, this bastion of disease to spread to your, you know, your pretty cottage roses and stuff like this. Where Rosa ragusa is one of those plants that we call a honey badger plant. If you've never seen the honey badger, let me, let me brighten your day with just a tiny, tiny outtake of this video, uh, that I know is going to make John Schmata's day, uh, and many other folks connected to Permit Ethos today because it was like a running joke up there. But, uh, just a little bit of the honey badger video. I'll put a link where you can see the whole thing if you've never seen this before. It's hysterical. The video is much better than just the audio. This is the honey badger. Watch it run in slow motion. It's pretty badass. Look, it runs all over the place. Whoa, watch out, says that bird. Ew, it's got a snake. Oh, it's chasing a jackal. Oh, my gosh. Oh, the honey badgers are just crazy. The honey badger has been referred to by the Guinness Book of World Records as the most fearless animal in all of the animal kingdom. It really doesn't give a shit. If it's hungry, it's hungry. Ew, what's that in its mouth? Oh, it's got a cobra. Oh, it runs backwards. Now watch this. Look, a snake's up in the tree. Honey badger don't care. Honey badger don't give a shit. It just takes what it wants. Whenever it's hungry, it just, ew, and it eats snakes. Oh my God, watch it dig. Look at that digging. The honey badger is really pretty badass. They have no regard for any other animal whatsoever. Look, and it's just grunting and, ew, eating snakes. Ew, what's that, a mouse? Oh, that's nasty. Oh, they're so nasty. Oh, look, it's chasing things and eating them. The honey badgers have a fairly... That was about a third of this viral video that, as of today, has 77,330,151 views. Probably about a million of them by people affiliated with Permaethos uh, and TSP events. But um, it's, it's pretty hysterical. And, you know, earlier question, how do you make money online? Uh, I bet this guy's made a few bucks on this video just from the ads that are served up during the video with 77 million views. And it was just something that stupid and retarded, but funny and gimmicky that, that worked out. So that's part of why I played it too. But also to, to make kind of the point about there are certain plants that are what we call honey badger plants. They don't give a shit. You plant them somewhere, they grow, they live, they don't die. Uh, everything else gets diseased, they don't care. They don't care. They're immune. And... There's only a few that I think that are really useful, 
to us that are like that, uh, that also kind of behave themselves. They don't just kind of like show up everywhere. Uh, and Rosa Ragusa is one of them. And so my answer to your direct question is my plan doesn't give a shit. It doesn't care. It's the crazy honey badger rose. But kind of for everybody else, why I think you should be growing uh, roses, they're one of our best medicinal and culinary herbs you can get your hands on. Uh, they give so much. Because if you have hips, the hips of a rose have far more vitamin C than an orange, uh, ounce for ounce. And they can be made into actually a soup. Uh, they can be made into teas. Uh, they can be made into a jelly. The petals have a lot of uh, uses as well. Rose water uh, is astringent, and it kind of creates a puckering effect, but it can be used in certain mixed drinks. Uh, and because it has that tightening effect, it actually can be used uh, as a skin conditioner as well. And there's a lot of really other great things about roses. Both the hips and petals are good uh, things to be used in teas. Um, just listing some of the key Uh, herbal actions. So when we look at an herb, we look at the actions of that herb. And I'm not saying it cures anything, it treats anything, whatever, cover myself, but listed in uh, basically the, the old pharmacopies, because herbs, and, and especially roses, roses were officially medicine uh, in, in the pharmacopoeia all the way up until the 1930s. And these are things that it was reported to do for people. Antidepressant, Uh, antispasmatic, aphrodisiac, astringent, antibacterial, antiviral, antiseptic, anti-inflammatory, uh, blood tonic, cleansing, digestive stimulant, expectorant, increased bile production as a kidney tonic and a menstrual regulator. Um, so it is outstanding. I mean, as far as medicinal parts, the entire plant, basically the flowers, the petals, the hips, the root, the root bark, and the essential oils of roses are all valuable as medicinals. There's over 300 chemical constituents uh, within the rose, and only about 100 have actually been identified. So there's a lot of value uh, in the rose as a medicinal herb, and I encourage you to learn more about it on your own and consider planting them on your property. Uh, Rosa Ragusa, you can pay lots of money for them with fancy names, and they're pretty much still just Rosa Ragusa. Um, But my favorite place to get them, if you want to buy them in quantity, is a place called Coldstream Farm. And it's a bit late to order them this year because most of these companies are selling large quantities. You know, they, they dig plants in the, in the winter while they're dormant, and they're shipping right now. Uh, so they're sold out of 6- to 12-inch, and they're sold out of 1- to 2-foot. They do have some of the larger 2- to 3-foot plants left. And, uh, like, if you want to buy 1- to 3, they're like 7 bucks a piece, which is okay. But if you want to buy 25, they go to a dollar 83 a plant, um, and that's how Coldstream generally works. There's big breaks at 25 and 100 units, and often, you know, buying five more, the whole order costs less. If you're in that kind of, you know, I'm going to buy 20. Well, you can buy 25 and pay almost half the price and, and get five more. So they end up getting you to buy big orders. Uh, but I bought mine from there. I gave away a bunch to students that came last spring, and the ones that are planted are doing fine. Uh, the other thing that Rosa Ragusa does is, you think of roses you buy in the store, they have these much larger flowers and much larger petals and all, um, but what they also have are like these, these big branches with big thorns that are well spaced out. Not Rosa Ragusa. Rosa Ragusa is a honey badger. The, 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 the shafts are literally covered There's no spot without thorns on the main trunks with hair-like, very sharp thorns. 
So if you want to plant something in front of a window that somebody's not going to want to crawl through, or you want to plant something alongside a fence, or maybe you want to plant it like on the outside of a fence so that people are not so quick to climb up on the fence or whatever, and they're going to, this is a plant to use because it don't give a shit. And if something happens to your Rosa Ragusa, it gets damaged or whatever, you cut it to the ground and it will sucker like mad the next year. It'll come right back. And it will flower all through the whole season, especially once established. So it's a great plant. It's medicinal. It's culinary. Um, it is decorative. It is a defensive plant. And it is pretty much immune to any serious diseases that affect other roses. So... That's an odd one to finish up with, but it's just the way that worked out. I'm ready to uh, sign off for the for for the day, and I want to leave you with kind of a, a cool song today. And I, I nothing that really fits anything we talked about. Just a song that I think is a cool song. Anyway, it's an artist that I, I think I've exposed a lot of you to his music that you don't know. Um, Jimmy Buffett. I mean, on the radio, it's pretty much maybe Finn's Margaritaville come Monday, right? I mean, maybe a couple other songs here and there, but that's. That's it. What people think of when they think of G Jimmy Buffett is a bunch of drunk guys in Hawaiian shirts and uh, crazy people smoking dope and stuff like that. And I'm not going to say that you won't find all of those things and more at a Jimmy Buffett concert. But the man has some, especially his ballads, that are just pure, pure poetry. Somebody texted me the other day and said uh, that one of the songs I played by them were like, how did I, you know, I'm in my 40s, how did I never know about this song? Um, I think a lot of you, especially those of you with either daughters or granddaughters in your lives, uh, are going to feel about this song the same way. How did how did I never know about this song? And as I, I mentioned earlier this week, I'm about to become a grandfather for the second time, and uh, my, my son and uh, his wife found out that they're going to have a little girl. And I'm sure that this song will uh, mean more to me uh, in a few years than, than it does right now. Because uh, that will be the first time that I have that in my life, you know, a granddaughter. I just had a son as a father. Um, but I'm playing this for all of you uh, parents that have daughters and granddaughters, but especially the, the guys out there. Um, this song's called Little Miss Magic. And, again, I think it's a side for many of you of, of Jimmy Buffett that you'll never see. You might wonder, why does Jack play music like this at the end of a survival podcast? Well, as I always say, life is about more than just waking up breathing the next day. It's about thriving and when we thrive we are emotionally healthy and and, and 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 mentally healthy and spiritually healthy and physically healthy and we know what we're living for and uh the older you get the more you realize that what you do today less and less of it is for your benefit and more and more of it is for the benefit of the next generation and, and if that's not a survival topic then i don't know what is anyway hope you enjoy the show with that this has been jack spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, even if they don't. Constantly amazed by the blades of the fan on the ceiling The clever little glances she gives me can't help but be appealing She loves to ride into town with the top down Feel that warm breeze on her gentle skin She is my next of kin I see a little more of me every day I catch a little more mustache turning gray 
Your mother is the only other woman for me. Little Miss Magic, what you gonna be? Sometimes I catch her dreaming and wonder where that little mind meanders. Is she strolling along the shore, cruising o'er the broad savannah? I know someday she'll learn to make up her own rhymes. Someday she's gonna learn how to fly. Oh, that I won't deny. I catch a little more dialogue coming my way. I see those big brown eyes just start to look in a stray. Your mother's still the only other woman for me, little Miss Magic. What you gonna be? Yes, she loves to ride into town with the top down. Feel that warm breeze on her gentle skin. She is my next of kin. Constantly amazed by the blades of the fan on the ceiling. Those clever little looks she gives just can't help but be appealing. I know someday she'll learn to make up her own rhymes. One day she's gonna learn how to fly. That I won't deny. I see a little more of me every day. I feel a little more mustache turning gray. Your mother's still the only other woman for me, little Miss Magic. What you gonna be, little Miss Magic? What you gonna be, little Miss Magic? Just can't wait to see. It's raining, it's pouring. Your old man is snoring. 